All right. We are accomplishing a lot this morning. This is way different than usual. I love it. All right. So if you're here for the first time, just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you decided to join us on this beautiful June day. It's a beautiful day to be in the house of God. So thanks for being here. Uh, I'd love to meet you after service if we get a chance. And and after service, we're having Activate week three, but you can jump in. If this is your first time you want to see more about the church, you'd be welcome to join us for Activate. We're going to have walking tacos. It's going to be a great time. But this morning, we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark sermon series. We're going to be in part 31. So I'm keeping track of where we're at. We're in part 31 of this series. We've been working verse by verse uh, through this series, or through this series for actually a year now. Today is the one-year anniversary of the start of the Gospel of Mark. I stood on this stage, and we preached on verse 1 of chapter 1, and we made it all the way to chapter 9, verse 2. So if you want to turn, or turn with me to chapter 9, that'd be great. And the sermon title is called The Mountain. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can write that down. And as you're finding your spot in your Bible and getting your notes ready for the message, I want to uh, speak to a pretty big issue that's going on right now in our country. I don't typically speak to political issues from the pulpit, uh, but I really feel compelled to speak this morning. I prayed about it all weekend, talked with Pastor Derek, and, and we really felt like the Lord was compelling us to, to say something. Um, if you're paying attention at all, you saw on Friday morning that the Roe v. Wade decision from 1973 was overturned at the Supreme Court. And I personally was elated to see this decision. I was overjoyed, something I prayed for my, like really my entire life ever since I could pray. However, I'm aware that everyone doesn't feel the same way. I'm aware that within this very room, there's a multitude of opinions. There's people who would say they're pro-life, people who would say they're pro-choice, and then some people who, who try to find a middle ground. Um, and this morning, I was pretty hooked to social media just to see what people were saying, to read uh, the different arguments. I, I've heard them. I think I've heard them all. I don't want to sound prideful. I think I've heard all the arguments. But, but while, again, I don't want to make it a practice to make a comment about everything. Actually, I don't think I've really made a comment about any like Supreme Court decision, any law that's been passed at all since I've been passed for this church. And I hope that you don't expect me to do that every time something like this happens, because I can't keep up with it. There's something new every week. I do, again, feel an obligation to speak on this, because this is not primarily a political issue. This is a moral one. I believe that this is the greatest justice issue of our time. I often think about the fact that you know, back in the 1800s and then in the 1960s, there were so many pastors and churches that did not speak up about slavery in the civil rights movement. They stayed silent for sake of peace and not offending people. And honestly, one of my greatest nightmares is that I would be like one of those pastors who is so afraid of offending people that I don't say what the, or what the Word of God says on an issue. And yesterday, yesterday morning, I was praying about this here at the church by myself, just praying like, God, what do you want me to say? And I just so happened in my Bible reading to come up to 1 Peter 5. And this is what, what Peter says to the pastors that he's, writing, that he's writing to. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, and not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Okay, so he's calling pastors, shepherd your people, care for them, love them, guide them. And then Hebrews 13 uh, the writer to the Hebrew says that, that church leaders are charged to watch over the souls of their people, okay? And it says that I, that pastors will give an account to God of how well they led their people. I do not take that lightly. I feel an obligation to pastor you through this issue, or through this issue as you're hearing from everyone on social media. You're hearing from a bunch of different voices, and I want you to hear from your pastor if you call this place home. I want to help you navigate this in a faithful way. So before I briefly wade into this issue, because I do have a sermon to preach, okay, so give me a minute here. 
Bear with me. I'm not going to say everything you want me to say about it. I don't have an answer to every argument you have, okay? So bear with me. i got about four minutes here. But before I wade into this, I just want to say that we're a discipleship church, church first, okay? We're a discipleship church. We are committed to being fully devoted followers of Jesus, okay? So with that in mind, when it comes to cultural, political, social, moral issues, we don't take our cues from the Republicans or the Democrats. Come on, somebody. We don't take our cues from Hollywood. We don't take our cues from a culture saying we take them from what Jesus says. Okay, we deny ourselves, we take up our crosses, and we follow Jesus, no matter how much it offends us at first when we hear something that he says about an issue. We, we submit everything to his, or to his leadership. And we've talked about this so many times in the Mark series that I feel like I don't even have to say that because we talk about it every single week. Every week you come in here and you're like, gosh, he's telling me to give up my life again. He's telling me to surrender again, deny myself. What is this church? That's what we talk about like every week. Okay, but I also want to say that this church is a grace and truth church, okay? It says in John 1 that Jesus came into this world full of grace and truth. He's like full of it, like overflowing with grace and truth. And in our culture today, we can't seem to find the tension between these two things. We need to hold both of them, okay? So as a church, we need to engage the world with both grace and truth, okay? So I want to make a few comments about the overturning of this decision and just know that I'm filtering everything through grace and truth. Okay, so grace and truth tells us first that this is something to praise God for. Okay, unapologetically, praise God for this. Okay, Genesis 1.27 tells us that each person is made in the image of God. They are the imago Dei, the very image of God. And Scripture tells us that the ending of a life in the womb is the destruction of God's image. It's the very destruction of God's image. And Jeremiah 1 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's God talking to Jeremiah, or to Jeremiah. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. I knew every hair on your head. And I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. How many prophets have lost their lives in the last 50 years? I don't know. It's been a lot, I'm sure. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you created my inmost being. This is David talking to God, the man after God's own heart. He says, he says For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, the womb being the secret place. And when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Scripture is unapologetic in its stance that life begins in the womb and that murder is evil. I don't think we disagree on that. And the Lord takes serious issue with the murder of children in the Scriptures. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the author of life, that he came to give life and give it to the full, and that the devil comes to kill or to steal, kill, and destroy. It tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus gives life, the devil kills. We must defend life. And we must defend the most oppressed, specifically the most oppressed. I'm not just talking about the unborn. There's a call in the church to, to defend the most oppressed among us from the womb to the tomb. We're not just pro-birth, okay? So if you're going to say that about us, we're not, right? We're not just pro-birth. We're pro-life. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, he said, he said, what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Okay, so the very least in the world, what you do to them, you're doing to Jesus. And that applies to life in the womb. What you're doing to the least of these, you're doing unto Jesus. We have a personal responsibility to defend the most innocent among us and to call our government to do the same. 
Okay, so with all this in mind, grace and truth tells us to praise God. This is the answer of the cries of multiple generations. For 50 years, people crying out to God. The way it happened is insane. The things that have happened in the last few years that kind of led up to this happening, it's only a move of God. I really believe that. But at the same time, okay, hear me now. So if you're mad at me, hopefully this encourages you a little bit, okay? At the same time, grace specifically tells us to have empathy for those who are not celebrating this decision. Okay, so the reality is there's millions of women who feel hopeless. I saw tons of tweets, Facebook posts, Instagram. There's millions of women who feel hopeless because of this decision. There's women who also deal with shame from having abortions in their past. Maybe you're here this morning and you've had an abortion. I tell Emily all the time, I can't imagine what it's like to be a woman. Okay, we love women, right? We love women at this church. We honor women. I can't imagine what it's like to be a woman. I believe women carry a unique weight, particularly when it comes to this issue. Okay, their voice is a very important voice on this issue. Our responsibility as a church is not to condemn people who disagree with us or condemn people who, or who have had an abortion, but to show compassion. We are called to be gentle. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't just apply when people align with your political views. Loving your enemies doesn't just apply when they're not actually your enemies, okay? Come on, somebody. We're called to love people even when we disagree. Okay, so if you're here this morning and you're struggling with this decision, I want you to know that this is a safe place to process. Okay, we don't all have to agree on every political issue and everything, okay? This is a safe place to process. We will always preach what we believe the Bible says. We will always preach truth. I, I hope you can count on that here at this church. But we will also always love you no matter what you think about an issue, what your background is, what your viewpoint is. Grace also tells us, though, that we're called to take action. Okay, we must step up. We have to step up. Okay, there's going to be a change in our culture with this decision, specifically in Iowa, we have to step up. We have to be willing to foster, adopt, encourage young women, give of our resources. We do that as a church. We give to Alternatives Pregnancy Center, which I think is the best thing going in the Cedar Valley to, to help young women dealing with unplanned pregnancies. We celebrate life in the womb, but we also care for life once it's born. Okay, so as I prayed over this too, I felt a specific weight that Scent Church has a calling on us. There's, I think this is not just something that I just believe this is a calling for us. I, I, I just believe this is from the Lord, that there's a calling on us to raise up fathers, okay, to raise up fathers, not just physical fathers who don't run out, that's part of it, but spiritual fathers, okay? Men have to step up. We have to step up, men. We have to take responsibility for the call that's on our life and take fatherhood seriously, not just for our own children, but for people who need a father, okay? We need to take that call seriously. We need to rise up. I pray that this church would be a church of men. Come on, somebody. Not boys who can shave. Men. Fathers. Come on. We have to take this call seriously, and we have to take our call seriously to be a sent church, right? Because I believe the best way to help with issues like this is to raise up strong men and women of God, fully formed disciples who can go out into the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. All right, we're done. I'm kidding. All right, so praise God. All right. So here's the thing. If you don't agree with what I just said, again, it's okay. We can process together. I just want to extend an invitation. Let's have a conversation. If you're struggling with something I said, or maybe you're like, hey, I get it. I get the life begins in the womb, but I, I still have like a nuanced view on this and you want to process with it, we can process, okay? This is a safe place to get in the process. But let's pray and then we'll get into the message, which is about something completely different. So let's see how this goes. Lord, uh, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that I get to preach two sermons today and praise God for these people who haven't left yet. But Lord, I pray specifically for this issue as much as I'm kidding around. God, I, I, I pray for this issue. I pray that our church would be a church that's about life from womb to the tomb, 
all the way through. God, we care about every single soul that's made in the image of God. And Lord, also I pray that, that this church would be a church that is passionate about justice and is passionate about seeing your righteousness reign in our nation and in our world. And God, I pray that this would be a place where even when we disagree, we can love one another. So God, I pray for that in Jesus' name. And also bless the sermon I'm about to preach. Amen. All right. So a few weeks ago, I was on a prayer walk through my neighborhood and I stumbled across this big giant tree. And I've been really strangely intrigued by trees lately. I don't know why. So I stopped and I just began to look at it for a minute. And the first thing I noticed was the large trunk. It had like this huge trunk. And then I scanned up the tree and noticed that it has like these expansive branches that come off of it. I was struck by how expansive this tree was. And I wondered how old it was. I wondered how many people have walked by this old tree. I wondered what the tree had all seen. How many decades had it been here? And then my eyes scanned back downward and I thought about its roots that go into the earth, that there's roots underneath the earth that are expansive as well. And I thought about the fact that for the tree to grow upward and be as expansive as, or be as, be as, expansive as it is, it needs a strong root system. And all of a sudden, right there in front of someone's house, staring at their tree, I began to cry. <laughs> Tears began to fill my eyes. An ordinary moment became a God moment. The Lord began to speak to me. He got a hold of me. He told me that if we want to see our dreams for Scent Church come true, then we need to focus on the roots and the base first. We need a strong, fully devoted core. We need to have integrity and passion in our leadership team and our core. We need to love Jesus with everything we have. If we want to be a big tree that makes a big impact, if we want to be a church that's for the one, for the city, and for the world, we need a strong, solid root system. If we can do that, the church will stand the test of time. In generations from now, people will walk by our church, not a building, but the people, and say, wow, I wonder how that whole thing began. How did it get this beautiful and this big and this expansive? In a strange way, God showed up as I looked at that old tree. The late famous poet Maya Angelou is credited with saying this, life is not measured by the numbers of breath or by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. Okay, so I know this might be kind of cheesy, but I think Maya was onto something. When we look back over our lives, we'll remember a few key moments. On our journey of following Jesus, we need transformative moments with him. Following Jesus is not, or is not merely an intellectual exercise. It's not merely ascribing to certain beliefs. It's an experiential journey where we encounter him along the way. In the last two or three hundred years, the, the Western world has embraced a worldview that makes it very difficult to encounter the Lord experientially. And we've subscribed to what you could call the Enlightenment worldview. This view essentially says that if God exists, and that's a huge if, right? If he exists, he's not really involved or that interested in the world. He created the world, got it spinning, kind of like, like got it going, and then he went off and did his own thing. That's like the view of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, all those guys. As N.T. Wright says, God lives at the top of the building and we live at the bottom. The stairs have been destroyed and the elevator stopped working a long time ago. The idea is that if there is a supernatural realm, it's far away from us and we can't know much about it or experience it. Okay, so this worldview has caused us to view things through a very rationalistic lens. Okay, we only believe in what we can measure or touch or prove. The only reality that, or that, or our only reality is what can be proven with the scientific method. 
And the operating principle is that we should not believe in something unless we can, or can prove it empirically. Okay, we don't leave room for anything that we can't grasp with our minds. And this worldview has seeped into the church and affected both the theologically liberal and theologically conservative streams of the church. In an attempt to fit with a rationalistic worldview, some liberal streams within the church have abandoned their belief in miracles, in Jesus' virgin birth and the resurrection, and they've rejected the authority of Scripture, and this has caused them to, or to embrace unbiblical views on other issues as well. Thomas Jefferson, I mentioned him, he famously cut out all of the supernatural elements of the Bible and left just the moral teachings of Jesus. And you can buy his Bible on Amazon today if you want to. But this has also influenced the more theologically conservative streams of the church that claim to uphold the authority of Scripture, churches that really pride themselves on being Bible-believing. Okay, so many of the most conservative churches don't make room for the experience of the Bible. While they might say, okay, the supernatural elements of the Bible, they did happen then, they aren't available today. Okay, so some go as far as to say that you can't hear God's voice today, you can't practice the spiritual gifts today. They reduce relationship with God to only gaining more knowledge. Okay, while I believe that they sincerely believe that they're being true to Scripture, I don't believe they're just like making it up, I believe they think they're being true to Scripture. I also believe they actually end up being more true to the enlightenment than they're being true to the Bible. Okay, they're being true, or they're being influenced by the enlightenment and they don't even realize it. If we want to have a truly Christian worldview that's in step with Scripture, we must break free from the enlightenment's hold on us. And we must unapologetically accept that the supernatural elements of the Bible are true and that they can still happen today. God is still on the move in 2022. Come on, we're going to sing it. God is still on the move in 2022. I need to get you guys going. You're still thinking about what I said earlier about abortion. But anyways, let's keep moving. Okay, so he is not far away. He's not disinterested, but he is closer than we think. He doesn't only want our minds, he wants our hearts. He wants us to have both informed minds and inflamed hearts. He wants us to be a people of spirit and truth. He wants us to be a people who hold to both the word of God and experience the presence of God. We see this tension in Jesus' journey with the disciples. He wanted them to both understand him and experience him. Okay, so last week we saw that the disciples finally understood that Jesus is the Messiah. They understood intellectually that Jesus was the king that they had been waiting for, and their mind was beginning to come into step with who Jesus was. And they also learned the truth that Jesus came to suffer and die, and that if they wanted to follow him, then they had to suffer and perhaps die, well, definitely die to themselves as well. And Jesus' virgin of the Messiah was beginning to bend their minds a bit. Their minds were, were, were coming into step with who Jesus was. But now in this week's passage, we'll see that Jesus wanted them not to just understand him intellectually, but to experience his glory. Before they could truly embrace this radical, countercultural life of discipleship, self-denial, and suffering, they needed an encounter with the glory of God. Okay, so with that in mind, let's pick it up in verse 2, chapter 9. It says this, And after six days, okay, so six days after he tells them, deny yourself, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, so just after receiving the call 
to deny themselves and take up their crosses, their three disciples in Jesus' inner circle are led up to this mountain where they see Jesus transformed before them. Okay, so the Greek word for transfigure that's used there is metamorphin, which means to change, or, or metamorphoon, which means to change. Okay, so it only occurs four times in the New Testament, and each instance points to a radical transformation. It's a visible transformation that shows Jesus' true nature. His clothes become intensely white where they couldn't even be bleached. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, they tell us that his face shined as well, or shone as well. This story, it's supposed to conjure up images of the Old Testament story in the book of Exodus of Moses going up on the mountain. So God had freed the Israelites from Egypt, and he had taken them out to Mount Sinai, or to the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And then Moses ascends Mount Sinai, and he speaks with the Lord. And on the mountain, Moses asks God, he says, God, show me your glory. Ooh, that's a bold ask. Show me your glory. And, and God's glory, what is it? It's kind of a weird word. Like, what does glory mean? Like, glory, like the, the old Pentecostals. Anyways, that's besides the point. I'm getting off. Okay, so God's glory is hard to put into words. It's like trying to define beauty. How do you define beauty? Try it. It's hard, right? It's, it's difficult. So Timothy Keller, he says this about God's glory. He says, it's his infinite weight, his supreme importance. Elsewhere, he says that the glory of God is at least the combined magnitude of all God's attributes and qualities all put together. Okay, so in other words, God's glory is the vivid display of God's infinite greatness and beauty. It's the display of all of his mind-bending attributes. And there's a weightiness to it. Okay, so Moses, he wants to see this glory. He wants to encounter God in his fullness. And the Lord tells him that he can't see his glory directly. So what the Lord does is he puts him in the cleft of a rock. And he says, hey, I'll come by you. And you can kind of see my backside of my glory. Okay, so uh, the Lord does that. And it causes Moses' face to radiate light. And now here in Mark's gospel, Mark is telling us that centuries later, this happened again, but with a twist. Okay, so they're back up on a mountain. Moses is there, and there's some glory. But the difference this time is that Jesus is the one radiating light, and he's doing it in a different way. Okay, so Moses, he simply reflected God's glory, kind of like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus produced God's glory within himself. Okay, he's just like, boof, the glory of God. It says this in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, so Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one we're talking about here, he is the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's not like Moses and Elijah. He's not just a prophet. He's more than even just the Messiah or the concept that they had of the Messiah. He's the glory of God in the flesh. But there's another difference in this story too. So so in this story, Peter, James, and John are all there with Jesus in the presence of God, and they don't die. They're like in his presence, in, in his, his straight-up presence, and they don't die. Again, in the Old Testament, an encounter like this would have killed you. That's why, that's why Moses was hiding in the cleft, like, hi, you know, hiding out there. You can laugh. It's okay. Anyways, but, uh, so the point is, Peter, he responds to this moment by saying this in verse 5. It says, and Peter said to this, this is hilarious. He says, it says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. 
And now let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> that's what you think of, bro. Come on. Let's make some tents, have a campfire. Woo, let's all hang out. Okay, so this seems like he's just making a fool of himself. I've been there before. where I, I, It's happened in my sermons before where I just like kind of do something stupid like this, and I think it's funny, and it's not, and I just start rambling, right? You just start saying stuff. You're like, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> so it seems like he's just being a goober, but actually he's on to something. If you, if you understand the Old Testament, he's kind of on to something here. Peter, he had just seen the manifestation of the glory of God that he's only read about, he saw the glory that was so powerful that the priests had to go through all these elaborate, these elaborate uh, uh, just religious, religious rituals to encounter it. They had to go through all these rituals to encounter it in the temple. And he saw this glory that could kill people. Peter had saw this, or had seen this, and now he, he's standing in God's presence. He's standing in his glory, and he's not dying. And the first thing he thinks to do is to build tents, which is the same word for tabernacle. And he wanted to do this so that God's glory could have a place to dwell. Okay, so this makes sense as in the Old Testament, Israel built a tabernacle for God to dwell in as they, as they wander through the desert. Okay, so Peter thinks they need a tabernacle to protect them from the presence of God. Okay, so he's not as much of an idiot as you might think. There might be a little bit of that in there. But the point is he wanted to protect himself, protect them from the presence of God. Okay, so after Peter's suggestion, or suggestion a cloud comes. And the cloud is just like the cloud in Exodus that appeared to Moses and accompanied the Israelites through the wilderness. It says this in verse 7 and 8. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Okay, so from this cloud, God tells the disciples that Jesus is his beloved son and that they need to listen to him. They need to listen to him. Then all of a sudden, the cloud, Moses and Elijah, they all disappear, and all they see is Jesus. After encountering the glory of God, the presence of God, and not dying, all that's left is Jesus back in his normal form. What's going on here? Well, Timothy Keller, again, beautifully explains this in his book, Jesus the King. He explains that, that Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the bridge between God and man. Okay, so Jesus enables us to experience the presence of God. Elijah could not do this. Moses could not do this. But Jesus could. Jesus was the pathway. Jesus was the portal into the presence and glory of God. And Jesus could do this for two reasons. The first reason is he is the glory of God, right? He is the embodiment of God in his presence. He's God in the flesh. He's the temple of God in a person. But secondly, he can do this because he pays the penalty for our sins. He's the propitiation, as, as John says in 1 John, he's the propitiation of our sins. He is our bridge. He is the one who, who makes atonement for us. He's our bridge to God. So now we don't have to go through rituals or jump through hoops to be in his presence. Instead, we can each walk intimately with God and experience his presence without the threat of death. Okay, so Tim says this, Jesus is the temple and tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and the ultimate priest to point the way for all priests. Okay, so Mark, he's shown us vividly that Jesus is our bridge to God. Okay, but here's the thing. Mark does not want you to only experience this reality after you die. It's not like he's like, I just want to get you into heaven. That's all it's about. I think we've established that throughout this gospel. It's not just about getting you into heaven so you can experience God's presence after death. 
I believe Mark also wants us, and Jesus wants us to experience his presence now. Okay, so in verse 9, it says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, so after experiencing God's power, Jesus says, keep it quiet until after my, or, until after my resurrection. Okay, so when Jesus says this, he reminds them yet again of his coming death. He's like, hey, just a reminder, I'm going to die. Don't tell anyone until after I rise back from the dead. Peter and the disciples, they still don't like this idea of suffering. They're not excited about it yet, which I don't think any of us are, right? But it says this in verse 10. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, they said, why do the scribes say that first Elijah might come? In the Old Testament, Malachi, the prophet, he prophesied that Elijah, the prophet, would, or he would return before God comes back to make everything right on the last day. So first Elijah would come and then the end would come. By bringing this up, the disciples are, are yet again trying to get around suffering. They're saying, hey, Elijah just showed up then why do we need to suffer? Let's just get to the part where God restores everything. Why did Elijah come? It's, it's time for the end, right? Restore all things. Jesus responds with this. He says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Okay, so Jesus is saying that Elijah has already come before this experience on the mountain. This wasn't what the Old Testament was talking about. Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. In the beginning of the gospel, we saw that John the Baptist was coming in the spirit of Elijah. And now we know that John the Baptist's life ended with a beheading. So Jesus is reiterating. He's saying, there's no way around suffering if you're going to follow me. The scriptures, they point to the, or to the Messiah suffering. And John the Baptist has suffered. His head got cut off. If he suffered, how much more would the actual Messiah suffer? And how much more will those who follow the Messiah have to suffer and deny themselves? Okay, so suffering is the Messiah's road. And it's the road of any disciple of Jesus. As we said last week, the way of the Messiah is the way of surrender. It's no coincidence that just as Jesus headed down his most difficult road yet, that God bathes him in his love and power. And the Father affirms him once again, saying that he's his beloved son, just as he did at his baptism. He reminds him how much he loves him. And just as his baptism led into the beginning of his ministry, the mountain is leading into the second half of his ministry. And the father knew that Jesus needed that affirmation and that power once again. But here's the thing, it wasn't just for Jesus. I believe even more so, this mountain experience was for those three disciples who would end up leading the church in its early years. Again, just before Jesus took them on a mountain, he said this in verse 34 of chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, so I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, I don't get pumped. I'm not like, yeah, deny myself, take up the gruesome symbol of Roman oppression on my back, come on, follow Jesus, woo, we're about to start speaking in tongues in here, come on. That's not what I do when I, when I see those words. And the disciples, I don't think they were pumped either. They felt this. They felt the weight of it. They had thought that following Jesus was a one-way ticket to glory. But now Jesus is telling them that they'll essentially have to die if they want to follow him. 
They kept trying to get around it. They kept trying to skip that part and just get to the end. Jesus knew that if the disciples were going to say yes to this call, they needed a taste of that eternal glory that was coming. They needed a taste of it. They needed to see that the love of God is better than life. They needed to see that the power of God is better than life. They needed to have a hunger and fire for God sparked in their hearts. If they were going to go the distance on the road of discipleship, they needed to go up on the mountain and experience the authentic love and power of God. They needed to know experientially that the Lord was with them. They needed to know that he was strong and glorious. They needed to know that he was beautiful and worth giving everything for. They needed the assurance that, that Moses got just before he or set off from Mount Sinai. It says this in, in chapter 33 of Exodus. He said to him, if your presence, this is Moses talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Okay, so here's the thing. If they were going to go the distance in their relationship with God, they needed the power, glory, and presence of God. Okay, so Mark puts the story of the mountain just after the initial call to discipleship to show the importance of the mountain in our own spiritual journeys. Okay, we need, come on, the presence of God. We need his very presence. We need not just our minds engaged, but we need our hearts inflamed. We need not just truth for our brains, but the spirit for our souls. We need not just the knowledge of God, but we need the power of God. We need to go up the mountain. But the question is, why do we need this? Well, I think there's two primary reasons. And the first is very clear in this passage. The presence of God strengthens us for our mission and our calling. You can't sing that song, send me, send me, I'll go anywhere, without experiencing the presence of God. You can't go and do the things that God calls you to do if you're not inflamed with love for him. Jesus, or he strategically took these disciples up the mountain after these two calls to discipleship because they needed to know that the presence of God was going to be their strength as they journeyed on this road of discipleship. If they're going to deny themselves, if they're going to take up their crosses and follow Jesus, they needed more than just truth in a hard challenge. Like they needed more than just a slap upside the head, although I think Jesus wanted to do that a few times with Peter specifically. But they needed more than that. They needed power. They needed love. They needed the very presence of God. And they didn't need it just one time on this one mountain. They needed to have personal mountaintop experiences with the glory of God throughout their journey with Jesus. And we'll see that they did as we read the book of Acts, that, that they continued to encounter the power of God. Whenever they would get persecuted, they would go back to the prayer room and say, God, we need your presence. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And then from that, they would go out again. John 15, 5 says this. It says, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me or remains in me or kind of sits with me and I am... In him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're going to be who God has called you to be, then you're going to need to be with God. You're going to need to be with him. Before we can ever do anything for God, we got to be with God. Before we can go, we have to encounter. Before we can obey God with joy, we need to experience the love of God and be given the power of God. But we don't just need his presence for strength. We need his presence for transformation. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3 says this, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The idea is that as we behold the glory of Jesus, we will become like Jesus. 
Okay, so whatever we behold, we become. So if you're beholding Netflix and social media all the time and what your friends think about this and that and that, if you're beholding that, you'll become like that. But if you behold Jesus, you'll become like him. If we stand in God's presence and behold him, then we can become like him. The presence of God transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. We need the presence of God if we're going to go down the road of discipleship. The disciples did not give their lives up for Jesus because they had to or because they were trying to get into heaven. They gave them up because they loved him. Let me ask you a question this morning. Why do you do the religious things you do? Do you do it because you think you're earning something from God? Do you do it because you think you've got to do it to get into heaven? Or do you do it because you're head over heels in love with him? Why did you come to church today? What was the reason? Was it because you're like, I want to meet with God today? Or was it because, oh, I'm supposed to go to church and Pastor Daniel has a tendency to text me after three weeks of not coming. So I got to be there. It's been a couple weeks. I got to come. Why did you come to church? Why do you do the things you do? Was it because you love the Lord or is it because you're trying to be religious? The disciples did not give up their lives because they had to. They did it because they wanted to. They were so in love with Jesus. They were so in awe of who he is that they said, Lord, I'll do anything you tell me to do. The call of Mark 8 to deny themselves and take up their crosses was not something they did through pure strength or, or force, but it was an overflow of walking in the love and power of God. And that's what Jesus wanted them to get. He's saying, hey guys, this isn't about you trying harder. Let's go up the mountain. I'll show you my glory. That's what he's trying to get into the disciples. Do you need God's presence if you're gonna do what he's called you to do? Okay, so how do we experience his presence today? I believe that the key is found in the Father's instructions to his disciples. What's he tell them to do? He says, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. That's why we care about truth here at St. Church. Listen to Jesus. I believe that, that when we listen to and behold Jesus, we experience his very presence. If we can look at Jesus and listen to what he says, we can have our own mountaintop experiences. But if we close our ears to him, like Paul said people would do in the last days, if we just try to accumulate teachers for us that would just itch our ears and tell us what we want to hear, if we do that, if we just kind of say, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to kind of look at what I think about things, I'm just going to do what I want to do, then we're not going to experience his presence. The Lord is looking for people who will be sold out to him, will be say. Hey, Lord, I'm giving you everything. I'll just give it all to you. He's looking for people who will listen to him above any voice in our world. That's who he's looking for, and that's who's going to experience his presence. If we want to experience God's presence, we have to listen to Jesus. We have to just look at him. And I believe the primary place where we can listen to him and hear from him besides his word would be prayer and worship. Okay, so the pathway to God's presence is beholding Jesus in prayer and worship. That's the pathway. Jesus is trying to show them, hey, guys, you can have this throughout your journey. You can see my glory. You can experience me. He, in the Gospel of John, he explains so much about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit guides them and will walk with them after he leaves. When we pray to God, we're pouring out our hearts to him and we're listening for his voice. When we worship God in song, we don't just do that because what churches do on Sundays. right? We don't just do it like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. We, we worship God because we're filling our mind with truths about who he is and then declaring those truths back to God. We're getting our hearts in step with who God is. We're beholding Jesus as Paul called us to do in 2 Corinthians 3. Okay, so with that said, the road of discipleship must go through the mountain of God's presence. Okay, write that down. That's the main idea. Get one thing. Come on, you got to get this. I believe this is important. 
The road of discipleship must go through the mountain of God's presence. If we want to be Jesus' disciple, we have to abide in Jesus. We have to behold Jesus. We have to commune with Jesus through prayer and worship. And we must refuse to settle for just knowing more about God in the Bible, just like knowing truths, although that's important. We, we can't just settle for that. We have to also have our hearts inflamed and our spirits filled with God's presence as well. About three weeks ago, most of the church and Chi Alpha staff team went to a church leaders conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And on the last night of the conference, we were worshiping the Lord. It's an incredible time of, of worship. And in between two of the songs, and this happens sometimes, in between two songs, someone began to speak out in tongues. Okay, if you don't know what tongues is, that's another sermon. We don't, we don't have time to tackle that today too, okay? But point is, they, they spoke in tongues. And the word tells us that if someone speaks in tongues publicly like that, it's supposed to be interpreted. Okay, so they spoke in tongues very loud for all to hear, and then someone else interpreted it. And, and the person who interpreted it essentially said that God was calling us to have a sense of urgency in our mission. He was calling us to go. He was calling us to go and reach people. And, and the room was full of pastors and missionaries. And God was commissioning us once again to go and reach the lost. Because here's the thing, when COVID happened, a lot of people hunkered down and hid out from everybody else, right? That's what we were supposed to are supposed to do, but I felt like it was a, a moment where God was recommissioning us. He's saying, you need to get passionate again about reaching the lost. You need to go out and reach your cities. And this was a holy moment. It was a holy, holy moment. And little did the interpreter know that the song that was going to, or going to be played next was Send Me, the song we sang today. The interpreter had no idea. Okay, so they begin to play the song Send Me. And I just want to throw the lyrics on the screen one more time, just briefly here. I can hear my Savior calling Take up your cross and follow me. Let my heart move in sweet surrender. Lord, it's my joy. It's my joy to say yes to you. Send me. Send me. I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere. This is my prayer for every nation to hear your name, be lifted high. Lord, as your church and as your children. Oh, it's our joy. It's our joy, not our begrudgingness. iPad, stay up. Not our begrudgingness. It's our joy to say yes to you, Jesus. You're worth it. Send me. Send me. I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere. Hear my heart respond with the a resounding yes, I will trust you all my days until your name is heard. In the darkest place, I will shine the light of Jesus. I can't explain it, guys, but glory fell in that room. God began to move. It was like thick and tangible, the presence of God in that moment. As God was commissioning a room full of pastors and missionaries to go back out and be the sent people that God has called us to be. And, and that encounter in God's presence, that encounter with his glory is still shaping me a few weeks later. As we had beheld Jesus in worship throughout, or throughout that entire week, really, God showed up, his glory fell, and we were changed forever. The Holy Spirit knew that for us to continue. And guys, here's the thing. Last couple of years for pastors have been particularly hard. A lot of stuff to navigate, right? It doesn't stop. There's more stuff to navigate every week, right? Like we did this morning. It's not been an easy couple of years for us. And God knew that if we were going to keep going and doing what God's called us to do, we need to experience his glory. We need to hear his voice again. And the beautiful thing is you don't need to go up a physical mountain to encounter the Lord. You don't need to go to a conference to experience the glory of God. You don't even need to go to a church, although I think it's good to go to church or else I'll text you. But, <laughs> but all you need to do is find a secret place, a secret place where you can meet with God. Matthew 6, 6 says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Find a time each day this week to be alone with God. 
in that space, thank God for who he is. Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Begin to worship him in your own words, even worship in a song that you play on your phone or whatever. And then listen to his voice. Pour out your heart to him. Pour out all your needs to him because he wants to hear them. And ask God to show you his glory. If you're gonna go the distance, if you're gonna be the disciple that God has called you to be, you need the presence of God. You need the presence of God, not just once a week, but every single day. You need the presence of God for strength and for transformation. And if you're here this morning and you're not right with God, like maybe you've never experienced his presence like that or you're not in right relationship, I wanna encourage you as well. The story of the mountain shows us that Jesus is our bridge to God. He's our bridge. In the Old Testament, we could not stand in God's presence because of our sin. Our sin separated us from God. But because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has suffered for us, now we can freely stand in God's presence and enjoy relationship with him. All you gotta do to have relationship with God is trust him. All you gotta do is put your faith in him and repent of your sins and make Jesus the king of your life. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. If you wanna get right with God today, we're gonna to have an opportunity to do that. So I want the prayer team to come up here. The altars are open. I know we're going long today, but I don't care. God's glory is worth it. We're gonna have church here for a few minutes. Is that okay with you? I believe we need to have some church here for a few minutes. Okay, 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes of your time. You can leave if you want to, but I believe we need to have church. We need to meet with the Lord. We need to meet with the glory of God. Okay, so if you wanna get right with God today, maybe you're saying, hey, I need to put my faith in him. The prayer team will be available up here to pray with you. I encourage you to come to them and ask them to pray with you. They're incredibly encouraging people. But I want to end by sharing this with you, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing to Jesus. Last October, a, a person who flows in the prophetic, right, so these people speak for God, he gave me a word for our church, and this is what he said. He said, there's going to be a prophetic, spontaneous sound of worship that comes out of your house, and you will be a facilitator of the move of God into your city and into your region and into your neighborhood. Essentially, what I took from that is he's saying that our worship is gonna be fuel for our mission. It's gonna drive our mission. If we can get to a place where we step outside of our comfort zones and let God move in the church and move in our lives, then I believe we'll see more and more people in our city and region and neighborhood come to know Jesus. But first, we gotta let God move. We gotta ask him to move. We gotta get outside of our comfort zones. And say, God, I want you, no matter what you call me to do, I want you. I'm not staying in the boat. I'm getting out. I'm walking on the water with you. I'm gonna be in your presence. Okay, so right now, stand all across this room. We're gonna worship Jesus. I'm gonna give you a chance to do that for about five to 10 minutes here. I'm gonna give you a chance to step outside of your comfort zone and worship the Lord. The altars are open. The prayer team's available. You can worship out your seat, whatever you wanna do, but begin to ask God to move. And I believe he will reveal himself to you. So I'm gonna pray. Jesus, right now, and if you want, you can put your hands in the air, put them out in front of you, whatever you wanna do right now. Just begin to ask God to move. Begin to speak in your own words even. Say, Lord, move in my heart. Okay, so Jesus, right now, we're coming to you. And Lord, we're asking you to fill this place with your Holy Spirit. I think about Acts chapter four, when the disciples were discouraged and they had been persecuted and they asked you to show up and you filled that entire house where they were sitting and they were able to speak the word of God with boldness. I pray for that to happen right now. God, I don't wanna wait till next week. I pray that it would happen right now. I pray that your spirit would fill this room. That and that your spirit will fill every heart in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, let's worship the Lord.